0: All right, everyone. Well, we are just um, two weeks into our summer sermon series, uh, and we're looking at the the letter, Peter's first letter. Uh, We call it 1 Peter, amazingly. Uh, And today we are at 1 Peter. If you want to open your Bibles, I recommend that. Um, There's one in your pew if if you don't have one with you. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to verse 21. Now... You may notice that our sermon text not only begins with a word of hope that God gives us, it also ends with a word of hope. And who doesn't like hope, right? Now, what lies between these declarations of God's hope is another H word, holiness. To which some are no doubt thinking, just feed me the hope and leave out the holiness. Before we begin, let me challenge you. Scripture says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord, to which some will say, I I don't really care to see the Lord, to which I say, you just don't know what you're talking about. To see the Lord means you're also in a right relationship with the ultimate source of happiness and joy and delight the God who loves to lavish upon his people grace upon grace. And so, listen, holiness is really what your soul longs for. Trouble is, we settle for meager experiences of happiness, joy, and delight apart from God. So, ready to dig in? 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we delight that this word has been given to us today. We depend on your spirit to give us insight. We ask that you would humble us in areas where we need to be humbled so that you may lift us up, so that we can understand the great truths that this passage teaches us. We pray this in the name of our Savior who bled for us. Amen. You know, I think most of us are familiar with the Hans Christian Andersen story, the ugly duckling, right? As you recall, this kind of ugly baby swan uh, ends up in a family of baby ducks. And uh, the baby swan endures all kinds of ridicule and hardship Because of his appearance, he's not like the ducks, leads him to feel lonely and rejected. So he embarks on a journey to to find a place where he belongs, And, and of course he encountered all kinds of hardships along the way. But as time passes, this baby swan grows into a beautiful adult swan, but still feels like an outsider, until one day he looks down at the water and he sees his reflection in the water, and he realized that he has been transformed into some magnificent creature. The other swans then come towards him, and, and they recognize him, and they lavish him for his beauty and his grace and his elegance. And he realizes who he really is, and it gives him great joy. The story of the ugly duckling helps us, aids us in a number of ways. See, the Christian goes through a similar aha moment. God has done something gracious and Peter spoke of it in our last sermon text where he wrote, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then next week's sermon passage, actually Andrew's preaching next week, come back for that. But in two weeks, um, Peter will again say, you have been born again. As the Apostle Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Much of our growth in the Christian life revolves around the understanding of this reality of the new birth that God has given us. Like the duckling who now realizes he is a swan, it changes everything in our life. The story of the ugly ducking also brings to life the hostile nature of the world we live in. The ugly duckling was mocked and ridiculed by the other ducklings and animals. He endured exclusion and isolation. He endured physical abuse and verbal harassment. That's the hostility of the ugly duckling's world. How much more so the world we live in? Remember that this is the context of this letter. Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor were enduring hostility from the world. And so to us, whether you are a Christian or not, this world is hostile, but even more so when you are a Christian. And so what are we to do? Well, that's what this letter is about. How do we live with hope in a hostile world? And you know, Peter lands somewhere totally unexpected. You might expect Peter to say, you know, your response to the hostility of this world is to hide out or to form secret groups, or to watch your back, or to fight for your rights, or elect the right president, or take to social media and decry the great fall of America. No, what Peter says is both surprising and spectacular. Peter is teaching us that our response to hostility is holiness. 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 Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, this topic of holiness is huge, so we'll cover some more in a bit, but let me just give us the main proposition this morning. We'll unpack the rest later. And that is this. God not only makes us to be holy by his grace, but this same grace empowers us to live in holiness. We will, hence our title is Holiness by Grace. This morning we will look at three headings, our posture, our position, and our purchase. First, our posture. What Peter is saying here is that each and every day, as Christians, we are to have a battle-ready, sober-minded posture that enables us to focus upon the grace of God. Where do we get this? Well, we see it in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. You know, there's so many ways I can illustrate this. I've been watching uh, women's tennis the last few days. It's been pretty exciting. Think of this. Think of a, a finals match, women's tennis, U.S. Open maybe. Maybe not the French Open. And it's match point. And tennis player, she's about ready to break service. Picture her there on the baseline intently rocking back and forth in anticipation of the opponent's serve. She's ready to pounce on that second serve and just smash it back as soon as it lands in her court. Or think about the track athlete all bent over at the starting position, intently focused on the first crack of the starting gun. Peter is saying that the Christian life is to look this way, battle-ready and sober-minded. This is to be our posture. This is how we're to start the day and end the day, and of course, all the points in between. But if we're honest, we often fail to live this way, do we not? So the issue Peter is addressing is on the one hand, kind of our ignorance, but also our complacency. I remember early on in my Christian walk, I was ignorant of many wonderful truths of Christianity. One. Was I was ignorant of the spiritual battle that is going on every day upon this earth. But then I studied Paul's words in Ephesians 6, perhaps you have as well, where Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against uh, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that's an eye-opener, right? To the uninformed and therefore ignorant eye, there is no spiritual battle playing out on this earth. But Peter says, no, yes, there is. Peter says we cannot be ignorant, nor can we be complacent. Now, it's also true that some Christians tend to only focus on this external battle, and so everything somehow winds up being uh, an attack um, from the enemy or the spiritual forces. That's the only blame that seems to be given. But that's not the primary focus in Peter's letters or Paul's letters. Where is their focus? Where is the real battle taking place in your life? It's in you. That's what Peter is instructing us about in verse 14. He says, not to be conformed to the passion's of your former ignorance. Paul calls this, what, the flesh. It's our old sinful nature which still resides in us that that wages battle and war against the Holy Spirit that dwells in us as well, right? If you're a Christian, you know this battle. But the point here is that there's a battle that you're in every day of your life against the hostile forces in the heavenly realms, against all kinds of things, and we also battle our own flesh, our own sinfulness. That is why Peter says, be battle-ready and sober-minded as you live out this new birth that God has given you. So let me ask you, how battle-ready are you each day? Now, here's the important point Peter wants us to ponder, though. Being battle-ready and sober-minded isn't the end goal. It is a means to a greater end. And what is the greater end? Peter says that only by having this proper posture are you able to do the important thing. What is that? This posture enables you to focus upon the future grace that God has for you. Where do we get this? Look at the end of verse 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, Christian, God has a future grace for you that you are to fully set your hope upon. Listen, this is how we're to live as Christians in this hostile world, focused upon the grace of God that he has you for, for you for tomorrow and for the next day and for the day after that. Think about this truth. Is it not true that most people tend to live each day ruled by the past? Past failures, past hardships, past conflicts. Listen, God has a different life for you Hear me when I say that. God has a different life for you. It's not that a life that ignores the past, but it's a life of grace that heals the past and calls you to live with a fresh outpouring of God's grace daily. Christian, how is it that you can delight to press on in holiness tomorrow, even though you may have failed today? You press on because of the hope you have in the future grace that God gives you. I like how John Piper describes setting our hope fully on this future grace. The only life I have left to live is future life. The past is not in my hands to to alter, it is gone. Not even God will change the past. All the expectations of God are future expectations. All the possibilities of faith and love are future possibilities. All the power that touches me with help to live in love is future power. As precious as the bygone blessings of God may be, if he leaves me only with the memory of those and not with the promise of more, I will be undone. My hope for future goodness and future glory is future grace. My friends, this future grace is meant to be upon our minds today. There is great power in this grace of God. Listen, you aren't just saved by grace, but you're sanctified. You're made holy by this very same grace. And so our posture is to be battle-ready with our focus on this future grace. Next, we look at our position. And the big idea here is this. It's probably not something new to you, but we're going to unpack it perhaps a little deeper. Our position is that of children who have been set apart as holy unto God. Peter begins verse 14 by saying, as obedient children. And then in verse 17, we read, if you call on him as father. And then in between in verses 15, 16, we read that God is holy. And since he is holy, we are to be holy, right? Now, you know, people who claim to not be religious, they love it when you talk about God as Father. We like verses 14 and 17. It's what's sandwiched between that bothers unbelievers. People want to want the God as Father stuff, but they quickly dismiss the holiness stuff. You know, yesterday while I was sitting outside going through this sermon, still had a bit of work to do, uh, Leslie was heading out to go play pickleball. She's found that new sport. She enjoys it. And she just goes to SYS. You just drop in and they give you some partner and you play. And I jokingly said, try not to cheat too much. (laughs) (laughs) To which she replied, you know, twice this past week with two different partners, I was honest and called fouls against myself, and we lost the point. One was even match point. And both partners were upset with me for being honest. She returned and I said, how'd it go? She goes, it happened again. I broke a rule, something about going into the kitchen. I'm like, how's that a bad thing? But if you play pickleball, (laughs) if you play pickleball, I guess you know. Don't go into the kitchen. She called herself out, and her partner was upset because the opponents didn't even see it. And he said, they didn't see it. Why give up the point? We laugh at this. We kind of just toss it aside as this is just how the world is. But no, this is not how the world should be. Holiness. People are so quick to reject the one thing that makes this world a better place. And so now, what is holiness? Well, listen, if you're taking notes, there are two aspects to holiness. One aspect is the one that people tend to jump to. It's the one they only really necessarily think about it. When you say the word holiness, they they think of holiness as purity of behavior or or a person living morally, and they're right, right? They are right. But holiness is far more than that. In fact, none of this living as holy makes any sense apart from this other aspect, so it's important that you understand it. What is it? Holiness is primarily to be set apart, to be made separate, This understanding of holiness is rooted in the Old Testament. The ancient Hebrew word literally means to cut or to separate. And so when the Bible says that God is holy, it is not saying that God is merely pure. It means that God is completely other, completely separate, completely transcendent. God is outside time and space. He alone rules and reigns in glory and majesty. And yet, amazingly, what we see also in Scripture is that though transcended, he becomes imminent. (laughs) He comes down. He wants to relate with people and things on this earth. And now, though, in order for him to do this, those things need to be set apart for him to use. And so, if something is said to be holy, it primarily means that God has set it apart unto himself for his special purposes. Now, here's a short list of things in the Bible uh, which are referred to as holy. Holy ground, holy Sabbath, holy place, holy house, holy bread, holy jubilee, holy water, holy nation, holy city, holy word. Now, consider this, right? Every case of the word holy here is used to express something other than moral purity, To become holy means it's been set apart for God's special purposes. For instance, you remember when Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle and before he could go into the tabernacle, before it could be used, God had him set apart everything in it as holy through this ritual of sprinkling with blood and cleansing everything, setting apart from its common use to its holy use. At the Lord's Supper, I usually pray something along the lines of this, and now, Father, set aside these elements from their common use to their holy use for your glory and our benefit. To be holy is to be set apart by God as holy unto Himself, to be instruments for His use. Did you see how wonderful it is to be made holy? God treasures you, you are an instrument He desires. He has made everything possible for you to relate to him. He's done that. And how has he done that? If you remember the last time we were together, the very beginning of this letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. God has set you apart as holy unto him by the sprinkling of the blood of his son who came and lived and died for this very purpose. And so the big aha moment we need to sink our teeth into is this. If you are a Christian, then you already are holy. By the sprinkling of Christ's blood, you've been set apart as God's child into his royal family, and you will never be any more holy in God's eyes than you are right now. See, holiness is primarily your position before God. You're standing before him. So, there's another important point, and that is this having this position rightly changes how we live. It is because your position before God is that of being holy unto Him, you now desire to be holy unto Him. And so, this leads to our next big aha moment. Because you are holy, be holy. <laughs> those of you who are still kind of kicking the tires of Christianity please understand this Christianity is not behave well follow these rules and become moral and ho- and then you become holy no the message of christianity is god has made you holy not be holy we see this in verses 15 and 16 God is not commanding us to be something that you're not. He's telling you to be who you already are. Verse 15, 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, this is a quote from the Old Testament, you should be holy, for I am holy. Christian, God in grace has called you to himself. He's cleansed you from your sin, made you holy unto him. He's sprinkled you with the blood of Jesus. He's adopted you as a son or daughter. You are a swan, not a duck. So don't be conformed to your old duck ways. Live like the swan you really are. My friends, especially if you're here and you're young, please take this in. Holiness is good. Every hurt you have ever experienced or will ever experience in the rest of your life from another person, every sorrow that has laid heavy on your soul is the result of the lack of holiness. Right? Can you process that? And so holiness is right and good and beautiful. And when you trust your life to Christ, you find that he has set you apart. You are now set on a path to seeing God and his glory. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for for they shall see God. John Piper, again in his book, Future Grace, writes of how this promise of one day seeing God in all his glory, full of love, and welcoming you, how this helps us fight one particular sin, the sin of lust. He says, the way to fight lust is to feed faith with the precious and magnificent promise that the pure in heart will see, face to face, the all-satisfying God of glory. The challenge before us in our fight against lust is not merely to do what God says, because he's God, but to desire what God says, because he is glorious. The challenge is not merely to pursue righteousness, but to prefer righteousness. The challenge is not merely to pursue righteousness, but to prefer righteousness. To summarize the second point, God is holy. He is totally other. He's set apart from all creation. And yet somehow, in some way, for some reason, he sets us apart as holy unto him. This is the grace of God towards you that makes you holy. And it is the same grace of God towards you that works in you to desire to live in holiness. So we looked at our posture and our position. Lastly, our purchase. You know, each one of my kids has been a lifeguard out here. And my in-laws have done something nice for each one of them. They they bought them really nice sunglasses for when they're, uh, you know, sitting on the lifeguard stand. This past week, my youngest became a lifeguard, and she showed me her new sunglasses, and they were really nice. I don't think I've ever had a pair that nice. Leslie told me how much they were, and I did one of those loud gulping swallows. (laughs) And so the first thought that came to my mind was, how is she going to react if they become lost or broken? Now, I'm counting on the fact that since they were so expensive to purchase, that she will take good care of them. That's the big idea here in this last point. Peter wants us to know that the Lord has paid the highest price for us. And because of this, we're not to take his grace for granted, like we are prone to do, right? Nor settle for some meager holiness. Compared to my other Christian friends, I'm pretty good. Verse 17 intimates this truth. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're here in exile on earth, basically. This is not our home in a certain sense. Now, first, this is not a fear of eternal judgment that unbelievers rightly have. This is a fearful reverence or awe, like when you walk into the Oval Office. I've never been there, but I have a feeling I'm probably like, Straighten things up and not try to be so silly. Or perhaps something more familiar to all of us, uh, like when you get pulled over by a police officer, you know. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Listen, it is right and good to have a healthy sense of reverence and awe concerning our Heavenly Father. Scripture tells us that every human being, Christians included, will one day stand before God and give an account for everything, everything. Yes, Christ will be our eternal advocate on that day, but we will experience an accounting of every thought, word, and deed. Let's spin that a positive way. (laughs) My friends, this tells us that everything you do truly matters truly matter and so it rebukes us for all those times we downplay our sinfulness or make excuses and it makes sense why we conduct our lives in this hostile world with a healthy sense of fear we see this in verse 18 through 21 Peter says we were ransomed from our old feudal ways God has purchased us out of that old life that old life that was headed away from God you understand that? He called you to himself. And when we see how much it costs, it must humble us. Verse 19 states that God didn't purchase us for himself with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. But it wasn't a lamb. The argument makes perfect sense God purchased us with a priceless sacrifice Therefore, we belong to him And we rightly live for him Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 6 (laughs) That was one messed up church, right? They were notorious for their sexual sins And so in uh, chapter 6, you can go read it But Paul admonished them to flee from sexual immorality Now, What was his reasoning? Here it is. Flee from sexual immorality because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul and Peter are simply stating what is true and what should sound reasonable to us. God is our Redeemer. He purchased us out of bondage to sin. He made us holy unto him. Therefore, our great allegiance is to who? It's to him. Peter states at the end of uh, our passage, verse 20, he says, He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him, Jesus, from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter is saying that our lives are now bound up in Christ, we are His. We are now believers in God through Christ. Christ has risen from the dead in glory. And now our faith and hope are in God. In other words, our lives are in God's hands. And there's no better place for them to be. A holy people in holy hands. Therefore, conduct your life with a healthy fear throughout your time of exile in this hostile world. This morning, Peter has shown us that we become holy by the grace of God and that we live in holiness by this very same grace of God and that our proper posture each and every day is to be battle-ready so that we can set our hope fully on the future grace that God has for us in the days to come. And our position is what? It's that of set apart by God unto God. Since we're already made holy, live holy. And that our lives have been purchased by God. We are His. So we live with a sense of reverence and awe, desiring to conduct our lives for His glory. Holiness is by grace alone. And grace changes everything. Let's end with a story from a 1999 Vietnamese movie titled Three seasons In this movie, we see a beautiful picture of how costly, lavish grace changes a person for the better. Her name is Lon. She's a beautiful woman. She's trying to make a life for herself by exchanging her body for others' people's satisfaction. Yes, Lon is a prostitute. All she wants to do is be able to spend one night in this nice hotel that her customers stay in, but every night she must leave. In this story, there's a cycle taxi driver, you know, one of those bicycles with, you can ride in the seats in the back. His name is Hai, who ends up coming into a large sum of money through this competition he was in. And now he has the resources to fulfill his desire to be with Lon. So he picks her up in her taxi, and he takes her to that nice hotel. And once you get there, you would expect this, you know, some passionate, steamy, rated-R sex scene. Instead, Hai has laid out a white dress for lying on the bed. And he orders her a lavish, rich meal. And he never once makes any physical advances. He simply asks that he would like to watch her fall asleep. Eventually, she does and high leaves. Lan has finally had that night in that hotel where nothing was asked of her, but instead, everything was given to her. Later, Han and Lan are reunited, <clears throat> and Lan says that after that night, she could no longer go back to the life of giving up her body to others for money, For Han had ruined her life, but in the best possible way. Christian, God has ruined our lives, but in the best possible way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your own gracious initiative, you have called us out of darkness into the light. You have set us apart as holy unto you. This is who we now are. This is a beautiful thing, and it changes us. We pray that you continue to remind us of this new reality in our lives, that we may long to honor you with everything we do, and when we fail, there is grace for tomorrow to lift us up again. We thank you for all these truths in the name of Jesus. Amen.